Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. And we are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. So, episode four, uh, we are in Mark chapter three. And in the last episode, we looked at uh, Mark 2 and saw Jesus confronted about a number of issues, people questioning him about why he does this or why his disciples do that. Yeah, in particular, they'll get into some discussion on why he's doing those things on the Sabbath day. So we got to talk about that at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Yeah, and so we're going to see that even though there's some opposition to Jesus, his popularity is just growing. It's kind of off the charts in this chapter. Uh, So we're going to be picking up, reading the text together uh, in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. We'll read verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. All right, so another episode where Jesus is by the sea and is commonly withdrawing to the sea to get to another side. But there are people coming from all around to come and see Jesus and to specifically hear what he's doing and to see what he's able to do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, these are all of the major regions in kind of what we call modern-day Israel. Um, But Galilee, kind of up in the north near the Sea of Galilee, Uh, Judea, the large chunk down toward the Dead Sea in the south, and Jerusalem, specifically the capital there within Judea. But then Edomia is to the south of Judea, so it's even farther away. And then beyond the Jordan would be like that other side, the east shore of the uh, Jordan River there, sometimes called the Decapolis as well, 10 cities. And from around Tyre and Sidon, those are two cities on the coast of the Mediterranean north of Galilee. So, I mean, people are traveling miles and miles to come hear Jesus. Yeah, I mean, and if you're from the Idumea region coming to where Jesus is, that's about 90 miles, roughly. We Something like at. that, yeah. Yeah, and Philly is, what, 110 miles from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, people are traveling a long way. And, again, they, they don't have trains or subways or cars. These people are traveling by foot. This would take time to get there. It would take resources to get there. And it's all in an effort to see Jesus and to get their various diseases healed and taken care of. And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if someone was doing these kinds of things today and they were true miracles, I mean... You couldn't stop people. It would, be, it would be a mob scene. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what we have here. Jesus is so popular that they have to get a boat ready. And Jesus knows this. He has yeah. the disciples, like, prepare the boat. Like, because, I mean, you imagine if people are can be healed just by touching him. I mean, people are just like, it's. I mean, this is a trite analogy, but like like a rock concert. People are just like trying to just touch the singer or yeah. whatever. It's like, so there has to be this separation. I mean, people are just wanting to touch Jesus. Because he can heal them. Yeah, it's it's impressive. And it just goes to show the amount of faith that they have in Jesus, even though they've never seen him before. And there's a really good lesson there for us. If we know Jesus to be the Son of God, even like these demons did, and like these people with these diseases did, if we know he can take care of our affliction and, and, and take, a, take care of our sin, 
We should stop at nothing to get to him. Mm-hmm, that's right. And so even the, the demons here are falling down before him and saying, you are the son of God. And again, we, we saw this with the miracle in the synagogue at Capernaum earlier um, that he tells him, don't make me known. I mean, again, it's kind of bad PR to have the, the right. demons be the ones uh, telling people who you are. But it just shows the wide variety of people who come to Jesus. It's not just those who are sick. It's those who are well even sometimes. And then even the demons are, are amazed at what Jesus is capable of. So he's reaching out to several different types of people. Yep, that's right. So um, that gets us into this next section. So we had this huge crowd following Jesus. Um, but now he's going to pick some more specific followers. For just a second, we can talk about this idea of kind of three groups that are around Jesus. Back in verse 7, uh, before we move on, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. So Jesus, as he's been teaching, there is kind of a already, a, I don't know if inner circle is the right word, but these closer followers of Jesus that are called disciples. And again, it's kind of a Bible word that Mm -hmm. we use, but what does a disciple mean? Well, it kind of sounds like that word discipline. That's right. And and that's one of those words that we use quite a bit. The idea to have discipline or, or you're driven for something. And that kind of relates back to, to who you're discipling, I guess, who you're following, who you're wanting to be like. Yeah, that's right. And so you have a discipler Mm -hmm. and I guess a disciple, so Jesus is the discipler, and you can we can think of it kind of like a teacher-student relationship, but it's more than that. Uh, with a, with this like a class you're taking at school, you're there to learn the information from the teacher. They might know a lot about calculus or whatever, but you might not like them as a person or right. <laughs> want to be like their lifestyle or whatever. You're just there for the information. With a disciple discipler relationship. It's a, you're imitating their, their way of life. Like you want to not just learn what they know, but you want to actually be like them. Yeah. Another word I might think about is apprenticeship. You know, you're, you're apprenticing somebody and you're dedicating that time. Last podcast, we talked about the disciples of John and the disciples of of the Pharisees. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's helpful to think about. Right. Right. So you're kind of being in this training relationship. Right. So there are already some disciples and then there were these huge crowds that maybe they didn't follow Jesus around, but they were there for the healing. Um, now there's going to be a third, even closer knit group right. of uh, the apostles. So let's read this next section. You got 13 through 19. Yeah, this is from the New American Standard Bible. It says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so like out of all of these huge crowds, yeah, hundreds, dozens, I don't know, but a lot of people. He goes up on the mountain and he calls those whom he desired and they came to him. So yep. like Jesus picks these guys out. This is not a mistake. This is not like a hey, first 12 guys to to get at the top of the mountain. <laughs> He's like, no, this is a, a conscious choice on yep. the part of Jesus. Uh, we know from Luke's account that he prayed all night before he did this. Yes. And so he appoints 12 
whom he also named apostles. And now we have, again, another kind of Bible-y word. Um, we've got disciples, which is a more general term for a follower, a devoted student of a, of a teacher. But now apostles is a word that's going to mean someone who is sent out. And actually, in verse 14, when it says, he named them apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach those words in the original language. Apostle is the noun form and the verb send them out is just the, the verb version of that. So like he named them sent out once so that he might send them out to preach. Um, that That's what this word means. It makes their purpose pretty specific, doesn't it? I'm yeah. sending you out for a purpose. And the text tells us exactly what that is. Verse 14 uh, number one, they're going to be with Jesus, and he's going to send them out to preach. Yeah, and, and have authority to cast out demons. That's right. And this is very similar to what we saw earlier in what Jesus was doing. Of course, Jesus is the teacher. They're the disciples. And Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 38, says, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And in the very next verse, he's out preaching and casting out the demons. Right. And so we've already talked about in some of the previous podcasts the importance of not only the miracles, but the teaching especially. Mm -hmm. The miracles would confirm the teaching of Jesus. That's right. And so what he's doing here is he's giving his apostles the ability to back up their message. The miracle confirms the message. Right. Yeah, we talked about that before. And so uh, it's just really interesting. We, we've met, what, five of these guys already? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so four of them back in chapter one are uh, fishermen, just normal guys. Yeah. Some of them have been disciples of John the Baptist, and now uh, they've begun being a disciple of Jesus. And um, then in chapter two, we saw a guy named Levi. And again, this can be a little confusing. You have to compare. Lots of the disciples have two names. So you have to kind of watch out yeah. for that. Simon Peter. Right. Simon and Peter. Uh, sometimes he's called Cephas as well. So uh, the Aramaic term. Uh, Greek is Peter. Aramaic is Cephas. Uh, uh, so Mark, this guy's called Levi and he's a tax collector. But here in the list in Mark 3, uh, he's called Matthew in verse 18. Um, so this is the traditional author of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so it's kind of interesting to note he's one of the apostles, one of the twelve. So these guys are kind of a, an even closer stage uh, of the connections that Jesus has. Uh, these guys are going to get to, to witness some of the most amazing things that Jesus did. And even among the twelve, we see even a distinction made here. Three of them get nicknames, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love that, that Jesus kind of gives these guys an alternate name. Uh, so his inner three, as they're sometimes called, are Peter, James, and John. Yeah. Uh, we call him Peter, but his real name was... Petra. The, yeah, well, it's means rock. His right. real name was Simon. But Jesus says, I'm going to call you the rock. Right. Which is funny because Peter doesn't seem like he's a rock. <laughs> when we see him later, like he's always putting his foot in his mouth. Yeah. Like, he's just, I guess he's a rock in the fact that he sinks as he starts trying to walk <laughs> on the water. But. That, that, that is true. That is true. But uh, Jesus, I, I love this about Jesus, is that he can see the potential in people before they see it in themselves. Yeah. Um, during Jesus' ministry, Peter's going to be one of the more unstable ones, seems like. But he's going to become a rock among God's people later, especially in the book of Acts. We'll see him go on to be become much stronger, much more firm. Jesus has a revolutionary plan uh, that will culminate in his death, his burial, and his resurrection to change the world. 
And if you're going to choose 12 guys to help send that message out, who are you going to choose? I would want to choose, you know, well-studied men, maybe doctors, physicians, professors, lawyers, stuff like that. But that's not who Jesus goes to. He goes to the guys he sees that have the most potential. And it's a beautiful story as we go through Mark and even into the book of Acts to see these characters develop as the biblical text tells us. That's right. And they're those guys you never would have expected. Right. Like, right. I'm going to turn the world upside down. I'm going to grab some fishermen and a tax collector that everybody hates. Yeah. Like, and then a zealot. What, what even is that? Simon yeah, the zealot. That's right. There at the end of verse 18. So a zealot, uh, your version might say Canaanian, uh, was part of a, a group of very, very devoted uh, anti-Rome activists in the first century. Again, the, the Jews hated the Romans, but not all of them were zealots. <laughs> like the zealots, again, the, we see the word zeal in there. They were zealous against the Romans. Some of them even, there were some historical things like the, uh, they're almost like terrorists. Like they would attack Roman soldiers or do different things like that. There's the last stand of the zealots at Masada. Really cool story behind all that. But what's amazing to me is that within his, his crew, he picks two guys who like never would have gotten along otherwise. Yeah, you've got one guy who's collecting taxes for the Romans. Right. And then you've got the zealot. Yeah. So Matthew and Simon the zealot, it's incredible that they are together in this. I mean, this is the like political opposites of the first century. And yet they are united under Jesus. And that's just so helpful for us uh, in a world that's really divided in all sorts of ways right now is that if we're willing to put aside our other pursuits, our other ideologies, and be disciples of Jesus, then we can come together with all different kinds of people. Um, but we have to be willing to put Jesus before those things. And it's when we start to put those other things before Jesus that we get all kinds of divisiveness going on. But I love that Jesus picks these normal people who otherwise never may have been united right, and puts them to work for him. And then, of course, last on the list is Judas Iscariot, and Mark spoils it for us, but he's going to be the one that goes on to betray, betray Jesus. And right. Jesus, of course, knew that going into it, but he still made this man an apostle. That's right. And this man's going to, again, have the same kind of privileges that the others do and work closely yeah. with and, the disciples. And do good. Mm-hmm. That's right. He's going to be one of the preachers, one of the miracle workers. So um, that brings us to this next section, um, picking back up with our reading and reading from the English Standard Version, um, picking up in verse 20 of Mark 3. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. 
So, so he, he came home, and Stephen pointed this out to me back in chapter 2 and verse 1. It says when he had come back to Capernaum. So this is likely Capernaum where he is. And it was reported that he was at home. Right. Yeah, so him. here he is at, at home, and the crowd gathered again. And Jesus was so busy, he couldn't eat. Yeah. We've been that way. It's uh, busy. Yeah. He, but he's clearly busy, a uh, busy man. And what were some of the people saying about him in verse 21? He's out of his mind. And I think that the idea is this is his own family. Right. It's not just re- regular people, but you imagine that. Okay, so you grow up in a, a carpenter's home. Uh, your dad's a carpenter. And again, we don't see Joseph again after the early stories about Jesus. Um, the last time we see him is in Luke 2 when Jesus is 12. He apparently had passed away. We just don't know. Um, but his family has grown up seeing this carpenter, normal guy, didn't look special. And then he turns 30 and off he goes. <laughs> like He's out there in the boat and suddenly he's starting to do miracles. and He's preaching in the synagogues and people are flocking to this guy. And now it's gotten so crazy that like he doesn't even have time to eat. Like he's so popular. And I think this is kind of a tipping point for his family. They're like, all right, this was weird before, but now it's just crazy. Like we, we need to bring him home. Like, Jesus has lost it. And so they go out to take a hold of him because they're saying he's out of his mind. And so we're going to have another similar charge here um, with them saying he's possessed. But what's going to be interesting is we'll see his family actually arrive in verse 31 in just a minute. So this is kind of a what sometimes we might call a Mark sandwich where he begins a story, right. inserts another story, and then comes back to the first story. We we'll right. see this happen a and, few times. And it gives us more insight uh, that way as well. Yeah. So that, that's really helpful. Yeah, he connects these stories right. together. So his family thinks he's crazy. My version says he has lost his senses, which I think just adds a, a different idea to it. <laughs> yeah. And now the second group that thinks he's crazy is the scribes that have come down from Jerusalem. So again, he's up in Galilee, and these scribes have made quite a journey up here because they've heard about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they have an accusation that really bumps things up a notch in the conflict. They say he is possessed by Beelzebul. Yeah, what does that mean? Who, who is Beelzebul? Yeah, so that, that was another name for the prince of the demons. I mean, it says here in parallel, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So they're having to say basically by Satan. Uh, by the the prince of the demons, um, that the demons are following their king. And the reason that the demons are listening to Jesus and coming out when he says come out is because Jesus is in cahoots with their ruler. And on the surface, you're like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But Jesus, he, he puts it in a very plain way. And he says, actually, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why, if I was the ruler of the demons... How would it help me to be casting out those very demons that I put out there if I was of the devil? It really doesn't make any sense. It doesn't help my cause at all. That's right. And Jesus quotes Abraham Lincoln here, right? <laughs> yeah. House divided it's, it's, itself. He looks, he looks centuries into the future, quotes <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, and then brings it back <laughs> That's here. right. It is funny, though. Like There are a lot of quotes that work their way into our culture or in pop culture that people don't even realize are from the Bible. Uh, that Abraham Lincoln was quoting Jesus when talking about America. Um, so he just says, this is the, the worst military strategy you could have. This is, <laughs> this is shooting your own soldiers in the back. If, if, oh yeah, I'm working for Satan, but now I'm knocking out, picking off his soldiers. It's like, no, how can Satan cast out Satan? If that's what his kingdom is doing, he's not able to stand. Uh, he's coming to an end. So again, Jesus is using kind of some some parables here, these kind of mini parables that are a preview of what we'll see next week in chapter 4. But in verse 27, he gives a second parable. 
No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So this kind of confused me for a while, but like, who's the strong man in this parable? I reckon Jesus would be the strong man in this parable. That's what I always thought is like, so, so Jesus is the strong man, but then it's like, wait a minute. But the strong man is getting tied up and his goods are getting taken away. Right. And so you start to think more about it and you're like, wait a minute. No, Satan is the strong man. Yeah. Jesus is the guy coming in and he is going to bind the strong man and take all of those who were now Satan's. He's going to make them his own. Right. Yeah. And so he's freeing these people who have been held captive by Satan, kind of plundering his goods is the idea. So Satan is a strong man, but Jesus is stronger than the strong man. He's able to overcome him, tie him up. So Jesus' point here is I'm not working for the strong man. The reason I'm able to have authority over the, the strong man's minions, if you will, is because I've overpowered the strong man. Right. He can bind Satan. He can take away uh, what Satan has. So it's the opposite point. So Jesus turns this on his head. I think we see Jesus reacting a little stronger to this accusation than some of the previous questions he got in chapter yeah, 2. because if it takes wind, it could really hurt his cause. It could hurt what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. That's right, because then people are looking at true miracles and saying, oh, it's because Jesus is working for the devil. Right. And that's obviously the very opposite of what... Yep. We want to have it. The same reason he tells the demons to be quiet and not be the ones proclaiming him. Right. He doesn't want that connection. So Jesus wraps this up with a pretty sobering statement, strong statement, that he says, you can be forgiven of anything, any blasphemy, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Then you'll never have forgiveness. This is an eternal sin. And he connects this, and I think this is helpful in Mark, verse 30. He connects it back to what they said at first. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about here is in relation to that same accusation they were throwing back at him. So Jesus That's is speaking right. about these same people, these scribes who have brought this to him. Right. And note what's happening is they're saying he has an unclean spirit. But we know from other passages in the New Testament that Jesus was casting out demons by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So you got the contrast between the Holy Spirit and unclean spirit. That what's, what they're doing here by saying that these miracles are by the power of Satan is calling the Holy Spirit an unclean spirit. And so that's the blasphemy that we're talking about here is taking something holy and making it profane, kind of dragging it through the mud is the idea here. And I think the reason that Jesus says that you can't be forgiven of this, because I mean, other places we see like Jesus forgiving people that are like, no, there's no way they could be forgiven. No, but Jesus forgives them. And he's saying here, always to be healed, there has to be faith. And in the case of Jesus, often people are coming to faith by seeing the signs that Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if people are so hard-hearted that they can look a true miracle, a true sign in the face, and say, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's an unclean spirit. You're working for Satan, not God. Then there's no hope for them to believe and repent and to be forgiven. So I think that's kind of the idea behind this. This isn't like a, a magic formula of like, 
oh, I accidentally said some words against the Holy Spirit or, or a slip of the tongue or something that, oh, and now I'm, I'm lost. Yeah. Like, so at one it. point I said, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And so now I can never be forgiven. And it's like just this weird exception that Jesus gave. This is a very specific instance that Jesus is speaking of. That's right. And this really is a heart issue that he's talking about. Right. You have to be really, really hardened to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So sometimes I have people ask me, like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid I've, I've accidentally blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. And usually I tell people, if you're worried that you blaspheme against the Spirit, I, that pretty much tells me you're safe. <laughs> like, if, you're, if you have a tender heart, a tender conscience about that, uh, then you're your heart's in a lot better shape than these people. Right, so, right. Um, that uh, is something I think helpful to point out in this uh, in this passage. So we get to the end of the chapter here and kind of the, the return end uh, of the his mother and his brothers coming. Um, so you got the 31 through 35? Yeah. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold! Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay. So his siblings and his mom left home back in verse 20 and 21. They went out to to get him sees him saying he's out of his mind. Now they arrive outside. And of course there's like no room uh, where he's teaching. Um, Similar to the guys who had to like, you know, take off the roof to let the paralytic down. So they're standing outside and they're calling him and the crowd has to kind of forward the message into Jesus. (laughs) And like, Hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. They're, they're calling for you. And Jesus, this sounds weird at first, but I don't think Jesus is being offensive here. He's using, this is a teaching moment, yeah. as he often does. Yes. He'll seize a real opportunity or something that's happened or a common idea or story and use it to teach a, a, a point. Yeah. So Jesus asks a question. Who are my mother and my brothers? And again, I don't think he's trying to say, like, well, who are they even? Anyway? But he's like, again, kind of bringing us to a spiritual level. And, and assuming maybe that his mothers and brothers can hear him you got to think that they're like, oh, no, he really has gone crazy. He doesn't know who we are anymore. But Maybe so. he's got somewhere he's going with this. He looks at those around him, those who are sitting there. And again, they're not just sitting there. They're listening to the teaching of Jesus. They're learning from the rabbi, the master teacher, the great physician. And he says, behold, my mother and my brothers. And he attributes that to them because they're doing God's will by listening to him. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful point. That's right. And just as a side note here, I think he includes the term mother just because that's who is standing outside. I don't think it's like literally you can like become the mother of Jesus by right. doing the will of God. It's just, he's saying, these are my family members. The family, yes. These are, my, these are the people who are closest to me are the people who do my will. And so what's interesting in this chapter is Jesus has kind of, in some ways, redefined his family. He's got 12 guys that he's called together and that are close to him that are now his his, his crew. And um, he's got some pretty serious accusations coming against him. Even his own family thinks he's crazy. Um, but Jesus is saying, no, like, the, I'm not crazy. I'm doing the will of God. And whoever else does the will of God is part of my family. 
Uh, and we'll see Jesus taken in the outcasts lots of times, people who respond, people who believe, that are even cast out by the religious establishments of the day, can be part of Jesus' family when they obey uh, the Lord and follow him. And so I think as we wrap up, I, I like the chapter break here personally, mm-hmm. because it makes us stop and think for a second. Well, am I in the family of Jesus? And if we really want to answer that question, we got to ask, am I doing the will of God? That's am right. I seeking what God wants for me that we see in his word? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right, because there's no other way Amen. to be in the family of God than to do what he says. Right. So uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter four, uh, which is a chapter that is almost all the parables of Jesus in Mark. We had a, a couple of short parables today uh, where he was responding to his accusations, but he's going to use a lot of farming parables. And we just see brilliant teaching in these chapters. Jesus is the master teacher. Truly, no one ever spoke like this man. And some of his most memorable teachings are his parables. Uh, So we'll get into that next week, Lord willing. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. Um, If you have any questions about what we're reading and discussing, um, if you'd like to talk more, please reach out to us and contact us. Um, You can reach us uh, at 717-585-0949. Text us or call us. You can email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information, find us online at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today.